Chapter 18 of The Empire of Russia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Kluckner. The Empire of Russia from the Remotest Periods to the Present Time by John Stevens Cabot Abbott. Chapter 18 The Regency of Sophia from 1680 to 1697. Administration of Fyodor, Death of Fyodor, Incapacity of Ivan, Succession of Peter, Usurpation of Sophia, Insurrection of the Strelitzes, Massacre in Moscow, Success of the Insurrection, Ivan and Peter declared sovereigns under the regency of Sophia, General discontent, Conspiracy against Sophia, Her flight to the convent, The conspiracy quelled, New conspiracy, Energy of Peter, he assumes the crown. Sophia banished to a convent. Commencement of the reign of Peter. Fyodor, influenced by the wise counsels of his father, devoted much attention to the beautifying of his capital and to developing the internal resources of the empire. He paved the streets of Moscow, erected several large buildings of stone in place of the old wooden structures. Commerce and arts were patronized, he even loaning, from the public treasury, sums of money to enterprising men to encourage them in their industrial enterprises. Foreigners of distinction, both scholars and artisans, were invited to take up their residence in the empire. The Tsar was particularly fond of fine horses, and was very successful in improving, by importations, the breed in Russia. Fyodor had always been of an exceedingly frail constitution, and it was evident that he could not anticipate long life. In the year 1681, he married a daughter of one of the nobles, his bride, Opimia Rutowski, was also frail in health, though very beautiful. Six months had hardly passed away ere the youthful empress exchanged her bridal robes and couch for the shroud and the tomb. The emperor himself, grief-stricken, was rapidly sinking in a decline. His ministers almost forced him to another immediate marriage, hoping that, by the birth of a son, the succession of his half-brother Peter might be prevented. The dying emperor received into his emaciate, feeble arms the new bride who had been selected for him, Marva Matwiauna, and after a few weeks of languor and depression, died. He was deeply lamented by his subjects, for during his short reign of less than three years he had developed a noble character, and had accomplished more for the real prosperity of Russia than many a monarch in the longest occupation of the throne. Fyodor left two brothers, Ivan, a brother by the same mother, Eudocia, and Peter, the son of the second wife of Alexis. Ivan was very feeble in body and in mind, with dim vision and subject to epileptic fits. Fyodor consequently declared his younger brother Peter, who was but ten years of age, his successor. The custom of the empire allowed him to do this, and rendered this appointment valid. It was generally the doom of the daughters of the Russian emperors, who could seldom find a match equal to their rank, to pass their lives immured in a convent. Fyodor had a sister, Sophia, a very spirited, energetic woman, ambitious and resolute, whose whole soul revolted against such a moping existence. Seeing that Fyodor had but a short time to live, she left her convent and returned to the Kremlin, persisting in her resolve to perform all sisterly duties for her dying brother. Ivan, her own brother, was incapable of reigning from his infirmities. Peter, her half-brother, was but a child. Sophia, with wonderful energy, while tending at the couch of Fyodor, made herself familiar with the details of the administration, and, 
acting on behalf of the dying sovereign, gathered the reins of power into her own hands. As soon as Fyodor expired, and it was announced that Peter was appointed successor to the throne, to the exclusion of his elder brother Ivan, Sophia, through her emissaries, excited the militia of the capital to one of the most bloody revolts Moscow had ever witnessed. It was her intention to gain the throne for the imbecile Ivan, as she doubted not that she could, in that event, govern the empire at her pleasure. Peter, child as he was, had already developed a character of self-reliance, which taught Sophia that he would speedily wrest the scepter from her hands. The second day after the burial of Fyodor, the militia, or strelitzes as they were called, a body of citizen soldiers in Moscow, corresponding very much with the National Guard of Paris, surrounded the Kremlin, in a great tumult, and commenced complaining of nine of their colonels, who owed them some arrears of pay. They demanded that these officers should be surrendered to them, and their demand was so threatening that the court, intimidated, was compelled to yield. The wretched officers were seized by the mob, tied to the ground naked, upon their faces, and whipped with most terrible severity. The soldiers thus overawed opposition, and became a power which no one dared resist. Sophia was their inspiring genius, inciting and directing them through her emissaries. Though some have denied her complicity in these deeds of violence, still the prevailing voice of history is altogether against her. Sophia, having the terrors of the mob to wield, as her executive power, convened an assembly of the princes of the blood, the generals, the lords, the patriarch, and the bishops of the church, and even of the principal merchants. She urged upon them that Ivan, by right of birth, was entitled to the empire. The mother of Peter, Natalia Nariskin, now Empress Dowager, was still young and beautiful. She had two brothers occupying posts of influence at court. The family of the Nariskins had consequently much authority in the empire. Sophia dreaded the power of her mother-in-law, and her first efforts of intrigue were directed against the Nariskins. Her agents were everywhere busy, in the court and in the army, whispering insinuations against them. It was even intimated that they had caused the death of Fyodor, by bribing his physician to poison him, and that they had attempted the life of Ivan. At length, Sophia gave to her agents a list of forty lords, whom they were to denounce to the insurgent soldiery as enemies to them and to the state. This was the signal for their massacre. Two were first seized in the palace of the Kremlin, and thrown out of the window. The soldiers received them upon their pikes, and dragged their mutilated corpses through the streets to the great square of the city. They then rushed back to the palace, where they found Athanasius Nariskin, one of the brothers of the Queen Dowager. He was immediately murdered. They soon after found three of the proscribed in a church, to which they had fled as a sanctuary. Notwithstanding the sacredness of the church, the unhappy lords were instantly hewn to pieces by the swords of the assassins. Thus frenzied with blood, they met a young lord whom they mistook for Ivan Nariskin, the remaining brother of the mother of Peter. He was instantly slain, and then the assassins discovered their error. With some slight sense of justice, perhaps of humanity, they carried the bleeding corpse of the young nobleman to his father. The panic-stricken, heart-broken parent dared not rebuke them for the murder, but thanked them for bringing to him the corpse of his child. The mother, more impulsive and less cautious, broke out into bitter and almost delirious reproaches. The father, to appease her, said to her, in an undertone, Let us wait till the hour shall come when we shall be able to take revenge. Someone overheard the imprudent words, and reported them to the mob. They immediately returned, dragged the old man down the stairs of his palace by the hair, and cut his throat upon his own door-sill. 
they were now searching the city in all directions for von gaden the german physician of the late czar who was accused of administering to him poison they met in the streets the son of the physician and demanded of him where his father was the trembling lad replied that he did not know they cut him down soon they met another german physician you are a doctor they said if you have not poisoned our sovereign you have poisoned others and deserve death he was immediately murdered at length they discovered von gaden he had attempted to disguise himself in a beggar's garb the worthy old man who like most eminent physicians was as distinguished for humanity as for eminent medical skill was dragged to the kremlin the princesses themselves came out and mingled with the crowd begging for the life of the good man assuring them that he had been a faithful physician and that he had served their sovereign with zeal the soldiers declared that he deserved to die as they had positive proof that he was a sorcerer for in searching his apartments they had found the skin of a snake and several reptiles preserved in bottles against such proof no earthly testimony could avail they also demanded that ivan nariskin whom they had been seeking for two days should be delivered up to them they were sure that he was concealed somewhere in the kremlin and they threatened to set fire to the palace and burn it to the ground unless he were immediately delivered to them it was evident that these threats would be promptly put into execution firing the palace would certainly ensure his death there was the bare possibility of escape by surrendering him to the mob the empress herself went to her brother in his concealment and informed him of the direful choice before him the young prince sent for the patriarch confessed his sins partook of the lord's supper received the sacrament of extreme unction in preparation for death and was then led out by the patriarch himself dressed in his pontifical robes and bearing an image of the virgin mary and was delivered by him to the soldiers the queen and the princesses accompanied the victim surrounding him and falling upon their knees before the soldiers they united with the patriarch in pleading for his life but the mob intoxicated and maddened dragged the young prince and the physician before a tribunal which they had constituted on the spot and condemned them to what was expressively called the punishment of ten thousand slices their bodies were speedily cut into the smallest fragments while their heads were stuck upon the iron spikes of the balustrade these outrages were terminated by a proclamation from the soldiery that ivan and peter should be joint sovereigns under the regency of sophia the regent rewarded her partisans liberally for their efficient and successful measures upon the leaders she conferred the confiscated estates of the proscribed a monument of shame was reared upon which the names of the assassinated were engraved as traitors to their country the soldiers were rewarded with double pay sophia unscrupulously usurped all the prerogatives and honors of royalty all dispatches were sealed with her hand her effigy was stamped upon the current coin she took her seat as presiding officer at the council to confer a little more dignity upon the character of her imbecile brother ivan she selected for him a wife a young lady of extraordinary beauty whose father had command of a fortress in siberia it was on the twenty-fifth of june sixteen eighty two that sophia assumed the regency in sixteen eighty four ivan was married the scenes of violence which had occurred agitated the whole political atmosphere throughout the empire there was intense exasperation and many conspiracies were formed for the overthrow of the government the most formidable of these conspiracies was organized by kuvansky commander-in-chief of the strelitzes he was dissatisfied with the rewards he had received and conscious that he had placed sophia upon the throne through the energies of the soldiers he commanded he believed that he might just as easily have placed himself there 
having become accustomed to blood, the slaughter of a few more persons, that he might place the crown upon his own brow, appeared to him a matter of but little moment. He accordingly planned to murder the two Tsars, the regent Sophia, and all the remaining princes of the royal family. Then, by lavishing abundant rewards upon the soldiers, he doubted not that he could secure their efficient cooperation in maintaining him on the throne. The conspiracy was discovered upon the eve of its accomplishment. Sophia immediately fled with the two Tsars and the princes to the monastery of the Trinity. This was a palace, a convent, and a fortress. The vast pile, reared of stone, was situated thirty-six miles from Moscow, and was encompassed with deep ditches, and massive ramparts bristling with cannon. The monks were in possession of the whole country for a space of twelve miles around this almost impregnable citadel. From this safe retreat Sophia opened communications with the rebel chief. She succeeded in alluring him to come halfway to meet her in conference. A powerful band of soldiers, placed in ambush, seized him. He was immediately beheaded, with one of his sons, and thirty-seven strelitzes who had accompanied him. As soon as the strelitzes in Moscow, numbering many thousands, heard of the assassination of their general and of their comrades, they flew to arms, and in solid battalions, with infantry, artillery, and cavalry, marched to the assault of the convent. The regent rallied her supporters, consisting of the lords who were her partisans, and their vassals, and prepared for a vigorous defense. Russia seemed now upon the eve of a bloody civil war. The nobles generally espoused the cause of the Tsars under the regency of Sophia. Their claims seemed those of legitimacy, while the success of the insurrectionary soldiers promised only anarchy. The rise of the people in defense of the government was so sudden and simultaneous that the Strelitzes were panic-stricken, and soon, in the most abject submission, implored pardon, which was wisely granted them. Sophia, with the Tsars, surrounded by an army, returned in triumph to Moscow. Tranquillity was thus restored. Sophia still held the reins of power with a firm grasp. The imbecility of Ivan and the youth of Peter rendered this usurpation easy. Very adroitly she sent the most mutinous regiments of the Strelitzes on apparently honorable missions to the distant provinces of the Ukraine, Kassan, and Siberia. Poland, menaced by the Turks, made peace with Russia, and purchased her alliance by the surrender of the vast province of Smolensk and all the conquered territory in the Ukraine. In the year 1687, Sophia sent the first Russian embassy to France, which was then in the meridian of her splendor, under the reign of Louis the Fourteenth. Voltaire states that France, at that time, was so unacquainted with Russia that the Academy of Inscriptions celebrated this embassy by a medal, as if it had come from India. The Crimean Tartars, in confederacy with the Turks, kept Russia, Poland, Hungary, Transylvania, and the various provinces of the German Empire in perpetual alarm. Poland and Russia were so humiliated that for several years they had purchased exemption from these barbaric forays by paying the Tartars an annual tribute amounting to fifty thousand dollars each. Sophia, anxious to wipe out this disgrace, renewed the effort, which had so often failed, to unite all Europe against the Turks. Immense armies were raised by Russia and Poland and sent to the Tauride. For two years a bloody war raged with about equal slaughter upon both sides, while neither party gained any marked advantage. Peter had now attained his eighteenth year, and began to manifest pretty decisively a will of his own. He fell in love with a beautiful maiden, Autokessa Lepuchin, daughter of one of his nobles, and, notwithstanding all the intriguing opposition of Sophia, persisted in marrying her. This marriage increased greatly the popularity of the young prince, 
and it was very manifest that he would soon thrust Sophia aside, and with his own vigorous arm wield the scepter alone. The regent, whose hands were already stained with the blood of assassination, now resolved to remove Peter out of the way. The young prince, with his bride, was residing at his country seat, a few miles out from Moscow. Sophia, in that corrupt, barbaric age, found no difficulty in obtaining, with bribes, as many accomplices as she wanted. Two distinguished generals led a party of six hundred strelitzes out of the city, to surround the palace of Peter and to secure his death. The soldiers had already commenced their march, when Peter was informed of his danger. The Tsar leaped upon a horse, and spurring him to his utmost speed, accompanied by a few attendants, escaped to the convent of the Trinity, to which we have before alluded as one of the strongest fortresses of Russia. The mother, wife, and sister of the Tsar immediately joined him there. The soldiers were not aware of the mission which their leaders were intending to accomplish. When they arrived at the palace, and it was found that the Tsar had fled, and it was whispered about that he had fled to save his life, the soldiers, by nature more strongly attached to a chivalrous young man than to an intriguing, ambitious woman, whose character was of very doubtful reputation, broke out into open revolt, and, abandoning their officers, marched directly to the monastery and offered their services to Peter. The patriarch, whose religious character gave him almost unbounded influence with the people, also found that he was included as one of the victims of the conspiracy, that he was to have been assassinated, and his place conferred upon one of the partisans of Sophia. He also fled to the convent of the Trinity. Sophia now found herself deserted by the soldiery and the nation. She accordingly, with the most solemn protestations, declared that she had been accused falsely, and after sending messenger after messenger to plead her cause with her brother, resolved to go herself. She had not advanced more than halfway, ere she was met by a detachment of Peter's friends who informed her, from him, that she must go directly back to Moscow, as she could not be received into the convent. The next day Peter assembled a council, and it was resolved to bring the traitors to justice. A colonel, with three hundred men, was sent to the Kremlin to arrest the officers implicated in the conspiracy. They were loaded with chains, conducted to the Trinity, and in accordance with the barbaric custom of the times, were put to the torture. In agony too dreadful to be borne, they of course made any confession which was demanded. Peter was reluctant to make a public example of his sister. There ensued a series of punishments of the conspirators too revolting to be narrated. The mildest of these punishments was exile to Siberia, there, in the extremest penury, to linger through scenes of woe so long as God should prolong their lives. The executions being terminated and the exiles out of sight, Sophia was ordered to leave the Kremlin, and retire to the cloisters of Denitz, which he was never again to leave. Peter then made a triumphal entry into Moscow. He was accompanied by a guard of eighteen thousand troops. His feeble brother Ivan received him at the outer gate of the Kremlin. They embraced each other with much affection, and then retired to their respective apartments. The wife and mother of Peter accompanied him on his return to Moscow. Thus terminated the regency of Sophia. From this time Peter was the real sovereign of Russia. His brother Ivan took no other share in the government than that of lending his name to the public acts. He lived for a few years in great seclusion, almost forgotten, and died in 1696. Peter was physically, as well as intellectually, a remarkable man. He was tall and finely formed, with noble features lighted up with an extremely brilliant eye. His constitution was robust, enabling him to undergo great hardship, and he was, by nature, a man of great activity and energy. His education, however, was exceedingly defective. The regent Sophia had not only exerted all her influence to keep him in ignorance, 
but also to allure him into the wildest excesses of youthful indulgence. Even his recent marriage had not interfered with the publicity of his amours, and all distinguished foreigners in Moscow were welcomed by him to scenes of feasting and carousing. Notwithstanding these deplorable defects of character, for which much allowance is to be made from the neglect of his education and his peculiar temptations, still it was manifest to close observers even then that the seeds of true greatness were implanted in his nature. When five years of age he was riding with his mother in a coach, and was asleep in her arms. As they were passing over a bridge, where there was a heavy fall of water from spring rains, the roar of the cataract awoke him. The noise, with the sudden aspect of the rushing torrent, created such terror that he was thrown into a fever, and, for years, he could not see any standing water, much less a running stream, without being thrown almost into convulsions. To overcome this weakness, he resolutely persisted in plunging into the waves, until his aversion was changed into a great fondness for that element. Ashamed of his ignorance, he vigorously commenced studying German, and, notwithstanding all the seductions of the court, succeeded in acquiring such a mastery of the language as to be able both to speak and write it correctly. Peter's father, Alexis, had been anxious to open the fields of commerce to his subjects. He had, at great expense, engaged the services of shipbuilders and navigators from Holland. A frigate and a yacht had been constructed, with which the Volga had been navigated to its mouth at Astrakhan. It was his intention to open a trade with Persia through the Caspian Sea. But, in a revolt at Astrakhan, the vessels were seized and destroyed, and the captain killed. Thus terminated this enterprise. The master builder, however, remained in Russia, where he lived a long time in obscurity. One day, Peter, at one of his summer palaces of Ismailov, saw upon the shore of the lake the remains of a pleasure-boat of peculiar construction. He had never before seen any boat but such as was propelled by oars. The peculiarity of the structure of this arrested his attention, and, being informed that it was constructed for sails as well as oars, he ordered it to be repaired, that he might make trial of it. It so chanced that the shipwright, Brandt, from Holland, who had built the boat, was found, and the Tsar, to his great delight, enjoyed, for the first time in his life, the pleasures of a sail. He immediately gave directions for the boat to be transported to the great lake near the convent of the Trinity, and here he ordered two frigates and three yachts to be built. For months he amused himself piloting his little fleet over the waves of the lake. Like many a plebeian boy, the Tsar had now acquired a passion for the sea, and he longed to get a sight of the ocean. With this object in view, in 1694 he set out on a journey of nearly a thousand miles to Archangel, on the shores of the White Sea. Taking his shipwrights with him, he had a small vessel constructed, in which he embarked for the exploration of the frozen ocean, a body of water which no sovereign had seen before him. A Dutch man-of-war, which chanced to be in the harbour at Archangel, and all the merchant fleet there accompanied the Tsar on this expedition. The sovereign himself had already acquired much of the art of working a ship, and on this trip devoted all his energies to improvement in the science and practical skill of navigation. While the Tsar was thus turning his attention to the subject of a navy, he at the same time was adopting measures of extraordinary vigour for the reorganization of the army. Hither, though the army had been composed of bands of vassals, poorly armed and without discipline, led by their lords, who were often entirely without experience in the arts of war. Peter commenced, at his country residence, with a company of fifty picked men, who were put through the most thorough drill by General Gordon, a Scotchman of much military ability, who had secured the confidence of the Tsar. Some of the sons of the lords were chosen as their officers, but these young nobles were all trained by the same military discipline. 
Peter setting them the example by passing through all the degrees of the service from the very lowest rank. He shouldered his musket, and commencing at the humblest post, served as sentinel, sergeant, and lieutenant. No one ventured to refuse to follow in the footsteps of his sovereign. This company, thus formed and disciplined, was rapidly increased until it became the royal guard, most terrible on the field of battle. When this regiment numbered five thousand men, another regiment upon the same principle was organized, which contained twelve thousand. It is a remarkable fact, stated by Voltaire, that one-third of these troops were French refugees, driven from France by the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. One of the first efforts of the far-sighted monarch was to consolidate the army and to bring it under the energy of one mind, by breaking down the independence of the nobles, who had heretofore acted as petty sovereigns, leading their contingents of vassals. Peter was thus preparing to make the influence of Russia felt among the armies of Europe as it had never been felt before. The Russian Empire, sweeping across Siberian Asia, reached down indefinitely to about the latitude of 52 degrees, where it was met by the Chinese claims. Very naturally, a dispute arose respecting the boundaries, and with a degree of good sense which seems almost incredible in view of the developments of history, the two half-civilized nations decided to settle the question by conference rather than by war. A place of meeting, for the ambassadors, was appointed on the frontiers of Siberia, about nine hundred miles from the great Chinese wall. Fortunately for both parties, there were some Christian missionaries who accompanied the Chinese as interpreters. Probably through the influence of these men of peace, a treaty was soon formed. Both parties pledged themselves to the observance of the treaty in the following words, which were doubtless written by the missionaries. If any of us entertain the least thought of renewing the flames of war, we beseech the supreme lord of all things, who knows the heart of man, to punish the traitor with sudden death. Two large pillars were erected upon the spot to mark the boundaries between the two empires, and the treaty was engraved upon each of them. Soon after, a treaty of commerce was formed, which commerce, with brief interruptions, has continued to flourish until the present day. Peter now prepared, with his small but highly disciplined army, to make vigorous warfare upon the Turks, and to obtain, if possible, the control of the Black Sea. Early in the summer of 1695, the Russian army commenced its march. Striking the head waters of the Don, they descended the valley of that river to attack the city of Azov, an important port of the Turks, situated on an island at the mouth of the Don. The Tsar accompanied his troops, not as commander-in-chief, but a volunteer soldier. Generals Gordon and Lefort, veteran officers, had the command of the expedition. Azov was a very strong fortress, and was defended by a numerous garrison. It was found necessary to invest the place and commence a regular siege. A foreign officer from Dantzik, by the name of Jacob, had the direction of the battering train. For some violation of military etiquette, he had been condemned to ignominious punishment. The Russians were accustomed to such treatment, but Jacob, burning with revenge, spiked his guns, deserted, joined the enemy, adopted the Mussulman faith, and with great vigor conducted the defense. Jacob was a man of much military science, and he succeeded in thwarting all the efforts of the besiegers. In the attempt to storm the town the Russians were repulsed with great loss, and at length were compelled to raise the siege and to retire. But Peter was not a man to yield to difficulties. The next summer he was found before Azov, with a still more formidable force. In this attempt the Tsar was successful, and on the 28th of July the garrison surrendered without obtaining any of the honors of war. Elated with success, Peter increased the fortifications, dug a harbor capable of holding large ships, and prepared to fit out a strong fleet against the Turks, 
which fleet was to consist of nine sixty-gun ships, and forty-one of from thirty to fifty guns. While the fleet was being built he returned to Moscow, and to impress his subjects with a sense of the great victory obtained, he marched the army into Moscow beneath triumphal arches, while the whole city was surrendered to all the demonstrations of joy. Characteristically, Peter refused to take any of the credit of the victory which had been gained by the skill and valor of his generals. These officers consequently took the precedency of their sovereign in the triumphal procession, Peter declaring that merit was the only road to military preferment, and that, as yet, he had attained no rank in the army. In imitation of the ancient Romans, the captives taken in the war were led in the train of the victors. The unfortunate Jacob was carried in a cart, with a rope about his neck, and, after being broken upon the wheel, was ignominiously hung. End of chapter 18 Recording by Jeff Kluckner, Plymouth, U.K.